Hey everyone, exciting announcement here from the Blockworks Podcast Network. We are hiring two podcast hosts to build a show with us called Lightspeed. TLDR of Lightspeed is that it is a show for builders, tinkerers, and lovers of technology. It's a callback to the heyday of Silicon Valley where great tech was built in garages, not in corporate fortresses, and was truly the Wild West. Lightspeed is an exploration of crypto from the perspective of a builder and an engineer who's designing for scale and is interested in onboarding the next billion users into crypto. If this show sounds exciting to you, you have a background in podcast hosting or content creation, go to the careers page of BlockWorks. That's blockworks.co slash careers. I've also linked it in the show notes here. You can just click there. It'll take you right to the page. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm Mike Ippolito underscore. You can just slide right into my DMs and we'll set up some time to talk. Would love to hear from you. We are super, super excited about this show. So please apply. All right, everyone, welcome back to another Roundup edition of On the Margin. Today, I am joined, as always, by my victorious co-host, Mr. Mark Yusko. Very pointed reference to our episode last week, where I think you correctly predicted uh, the sale of First Republic to J.P. Morgan. So, well, I, you know, I had no, I actually had no inside information, but but inevitably, all assets roll to to J.P.M. and, and we'll talk, I'm sure, a lot about that today. Uh, here's a crazy stat. JPM is now four trillion, and there's the T word, trillion with a T of assets. It's as large as the PBOC. That's something. All right. So real quick for the reveal. So I got my my Ryan Reynolds free guy shirt on today. I've been watching Welcome to Wrexham. I love it. I might even turn back into a, a football fan, soccer fan. I got the Bitcoin orange pants going on. And happy Cinco de Mayo. So I've got the Bitcoin Citadel, all right, the castle. And, uh, you know, people will be watching this on on Seis de, Cinco, or Seis de Mayo, not Cinco de uh. Mayo, but today, Cinco de Mayo, big party. Um, you know, the Bitcoin Citadel is interesting in that there's this cartoon. I wish I could remember the woman's name who who draws them uh, so I could give her credit. But, but I love these cartoons. And there's uh. the 2010. On the left-hand side, it shows uh, a, a cartoon guy with a mansion and a Lambo, and the guy holding the bitcoins homeless, little shack. Um, and then it goes to 2015 or something, and the uh, regular guy, no Lambo, you know, kind of smaller house, and Bitcoin guy's got a house. 2020, guy on the the normal guy. Got the little shack, and the Bitcoin guy has got a big house and a and a Lambo. And this is 2040. The Bitcoin, the regular guy's homeless, and the Bitcoin has a big castle. And the the person at the bottom says, "He say he has a whole Bitcoin." <laughs> and I think that. that all of this ties in together with the J.P. Morgan and the takeover and the nonsense and. Uh, of the banking system and where we're headed with CBDCs, all of this is about the Citadel. You need yeah. a Citadel in your life to protect you from what's coming. And, you know, like sign says, buy Bitcoin. Yeah, so I want to get into the specifics of what happened with the, the First Republic takeover, but maybe before we do, because I think this is going to segue kind of nicely into that, we had our FOMC this week and Jay Powell gave us what the media is now dubbing a, a hawkish pause, right? We got our 25 basis points that we all expected and we're, we're getting something oh more God. called a hawkish, a hawkish pause. pause. Are you freaking okay, I'm glad, me? I'm glad Seriously. you reacted like that too. I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> if you just took the hawkish off, that would obviously be good. So I'm just curious what you, what's your take on all this? Oh God, I, I'm just, I can't stand it, right? <laughs> The Fed, and, and again, is it the Fed? Is it some more larger, again, it's Sinister Saturday, some larger body that's, that's controlling? The Fed has destroyed a whole bunch of people's lives. Uh, I mean, let's think about this for a second. Think about the shareholders of First Republic. Think about the shareholders of Signature Bank, of Silvergate Bank. Think about the people that work there. I was with a friend. I went to, a, I spoke at a, uh, uh, there's a crypto hedge fund that I, I really like. 
uh, called Permian. And I, I was out at their annual meeting and I was talking with this, this guy, uh, a friend of mine who lives in, in Park City. And he said a bunch of his friends were, you know, big shareholders of uh, First Republic. He said, there's one guy, he's like, I, I got to move. I, I got to sell my house. I, I got I to gotta leave. I mean, and this, this whole, and what I mean by the Fed or whoever they are, this was, I, I, I unfortunately believe it was intentional um, to funnel the money up into the, the system and foment fear in the banking system, uh, which you got. You have, I think 53% of people are now afraid to have their money in the bank. Some, some stat from the other day, some survey. But what, what does all this do? Well, if, if you keep interest rates at zero for a long time, like way longer than you needed to, and basically give money to the banks, right? Because what, what happened? What I mean by that? Well, you're lending from the Fed at zero, and then you're telling the um, you're telling the banks to to lend that money. Well, they're like, well, no one wants loans. There's no demand because the economy is kind of moribund, and you know you're telling everyone that things are bad, like you're still in a crisis because interest rates are zero. So there's no confidence. So there's no lending activity. Oh, just buy our bonds. Just buy our treasury bonds. Uh-huh. Okay, free money. Literally free guy shirt. Free money. I borrow at zero. I invest at three. Free money. Oh, I'll lever that up 10, 12 times. So all these banks and these banks started to grow. These regional banks started to grow. These banks serving, you know, businesses so, or entrepreneurs, they started to grow. So then what happens? Um, well, start raising rates. Well, wait, who does that benefit? Well, it benefits banks in theory because the NIMS, the net interest margin rises. Right? If I can pay my depositors nothing, because those are always sticky, uh, yeah. you know they don't they don't raise the deposit rates very quickly, and I can lend. But again, there's there's very little demand for loans. Well, except at the largest level, the big firm, big banks making loans, so they're now winning. Well, then, bam! What happens? You just destroyed the balance sheets of these banks that you said you were trying to help. You never said you would try to help. You just help them, uh, and and it 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 just seems all too convenient, kind of uh-huh. like in the global financial crisis. J.P. Morgan et al. got this big bailout. Little Washington Mutual, which wasn't very little at the time, was one of the largest banks in the country. Yeah, flushed, and then who bought it? On Sunday night, shocking, J.P. Morgan. So, yeah. anyway, that's a long diatribe on why I I really am concerned that this is all part of a very very evil plan to go to to CBDC world. Okay, so parts of that I agree with. A little bit I'd push back on. Uh, you know, we we disagree. That's with- why we have the show. Exactly. Exactly. Um, push, so push. what I would say, well, let me, let me give the deals, the, the terms of the deal first. So to be honest, I mean, if we rewind the clock to last Friday, when you, you basically predicted this, this all happened on, on Sunday. And then there was kind of an auction that was run by the government and we got some of the terms auction. of, yes, and <laughs> an auction, uh, that was run, run by the government. I think there was, there was rumors that PNC was, was, uh, participating, but JP Morgan ended up winning. And here are some of the key transaction elements. So the acquisition includes a substantial majority of First Republic Bank's assets, including 100, approximately 173 billions of loans and approximately 30 billion of securities. The assumption of approximately $92 billion worth of deposits, including 30 billion of large bank deposits, which will be repaid post-close or eliminating consolidation. FDIC will provide law share agreements covering acquired single-family residential mortgage loans and commercial loans, as well as $50 billion of fixed five-year fixed rate term financing. JP Morgan Chase is not assuming First Republic's corporate debt or preferred stock. This is a, from the perspective of JP Morgan, man, 
they got to, so this, this bank basically went into receivership. They got to take a look at the books, pick what they wanted, not assume what they didn't. <laughs> and the FDIC gave them basically a free put. But, but that, it was, I mean, Michael, it was a fair auction. In air quotes. I, yeah. This is a, this is an assassination. Okay. That's what it was. It was an assassination. And, and then you let the assailant kind of go in like saying, and, and pick whatever they wanted off the body. And it's, and it makes me angry. It, I mean, it really does. It makes me angry. It makes me angry to think about, like you say, you wipe out the shareholders. I mean, you look at that stock chart. I mean, it's, that is a, it's like pushing someone off a cliff. I mean, it's, it's just, I don't know. I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not really happy about what's happening. Right. I mean, cause it's, it, it, cause it went on this week, uh -huh. three more. Yeah. Okay? Hack West and, um, okay. I can't remember the second. The, I mean, there's, there's, there's three more that are on the verge and there'll probably be more announcements this Sunday. And uh, I mean, I just, this is, this is not accidental. So, no yeah, it was PacWest. I think Western Alliance. Western was, Alliance, that was it. Thank was you. under struggle. And then there was, there was, there was another one as well. I think it was yeah. one of the, the, one of the banks over in, in Utah, one of the big Mormon banks. It might've been Zion. Yeah, yeah, like maybe that. it was Zion's. Yep. Yeah. Um, so, so where, what I agree with you on um, is, so I, I think, okay, what, what I disagree is, I don't think this is a plan for bank consolidation. I think the Fed is really concerned sure. about interest rates and price stability, and they're trying to do what they think is best. Now, there's a lot of debate about, are they actually doing what's best? And even if you have the right intentions and you're trying to restore price stability, are you trying to, you know, use a, a, a chainsaw to get a sliver out kind of thing, or a chainsaw for a butter knife or pick your analogy. But it's just it's too nice. much, right? And there and there are better nice. ways to do it, right? Yeah, there are better ways to do it, and and I, I sympathize with that view. But I also think, and this is where I will partially agree with you. I don't think it is a plan, but do I think they mind that there's extreme consolidation in the bank sector? I do not think they mind that. And actually, you know, yeah. I, I didn't really know this because I've I've seen that chart and we've talked about it. The extreme consolidation from the 1960s or something like that, 20. 24, 25,000 banks in the U.S. And now I think we're down around 4,000. So it's really been a, a one-way stream of consolidation. I will say the U.S. is a, an outlier in terms of our banking system. In most other countries, you have like 15 or 20 banks or something like that. Sure. Maybe even less or something. There are natural economic forces that pull towards consolidation in the banking sector. I personally sure. think it's a good for there to be more optionality. I was, I was talking about this on... With with uh with Jason the other day, but you know this this there's a whole conversation to be had about financialization in general. Like you know that whole it's a wonderful life. People, I know there's a bank run in, in that in that scene, but you know when how yep. you used to get a mortgage, right? Where a local lender would underwrite mortgages because they understand who these people are and they Absolutely. know if they're a good credit or not. And now we have this weird system of oh really these are just uh, you know distribution hubs and. They just originate mortgages and then they're packaged up and sold to someone in Japan. And is that really good? I I don't know. I'm no. Look, it's how I, the system I, I, works. It's a really important point. It's an important point you bring up. Looking in the old days, uh, you know, I officially become. I don't know if it's official, whatever. Uh, by the time we do this again next week, I'll, I'll officially be an OG and not an old guy. Uh, I'll, I'll have my sixtieth on on Tuesday. So, congrats, um, Mark. But in the old days, right? Well, see, here's the best, you know, the best part. Other than like seeing myself on screen, I don't feel 60 years old. I hang out with 30-year-olds all day. You know, the world of digital assets is filled with 30-year-olds. I had lunch mm -hmm. with this really cool guy yesterday, you know, breakfast the day before. And I mean, I'm, I'm just having a blast. And so I don't, I mean, I feel like, a young person, but then I, I walk by a mirror and I'm like, "Oh, that guy's not young." But anyway, um, but the, in the old days, and this is even predating when I was grow, like when I was a kid, and, and my parents, the bankers, to your point, were were members of the community. 
right? If you were the banker, that would be like the doctor. And, and you were revered members of, of communities. And you actually knew, to your point, who was a good risk and who wasn't. Uh -huh. You knew the assets you were lending against. And you lent with the intent of being paid back both interest and principal. Uh -huh. That was called hedged finance, right? That's the way it's supposed to work, okay? Then starting maybe in the 70s, 80s, into the 90s, we went to speculative finance. The banker in town was replaced by some corporate guy at a home office, and you didn't really know, and, and, and the loans were made expectation of interest. They know you couldn't pay the principal back because, you know, but, but you could pay the interest, right? Okay. It's all good. Well, then in the late 90s into the bubble in 2000s, we moved to Ponzi finance, which is where we are today. Ponzi finance is where there are nobody with any decision-making authority or experience or knowledge in your community at the, at the banking level. Okay, it's all New York, London, you know, whatever. And to your point, those loans aren't being held at the bank level. They're being securitized and sliced and diced and repackaged and sold around the world. And the loans are made, they don't care if, if you pay principal or interest for that matter, right? We'll give you a bullet loan. We'll give you an interest, you know. We just hope you, 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 you know, flip the asset and pay us later. That's Ponzi finance. And that, that's where we are. And, and the Ponzi finance goes beyond just lending on homes or businesses. It's government, right? It's, we got Ponzi finance everywhere. And Ponzi finance is literally when you are paying off the current portion of the debt with someone else's money, right? Like government deficits, things like that. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. You know, Mark, I really love that definition. I think people overuse the term Ponzi. They, yeah. you know, it, this, this does frustrate me a little when I hear people describe Bitcoin as a Ponzi scheme, because the, what I think Speed. people are keying into is, like, oh, well, it needs to grow. Otherwise it's not going to be successful. And if that's your definition of a Ponzi, then basically everything is a Ponzi because everything needs to grow, including the economy. The definition of a Ponzi that I've always liked is you pay off new investors with old investors' money. And that is the definition. I mean, that's the old, yeah, you know, God, correct. that's what he was doing. Correct. And that is what explicitly what the Treasury does with their, that is a, that is a part of when they're issuing a whole new tranche of Treasuries. That's, that's what they're doing. So uh, kinda, I'm with you on that. Kind of is, actually, absolutely is. To your point, it, it is. It is a, I, I, look, maybe I just don't understand something and there's all these people that are smart. That's hundred percent a possibility, but I do think this whole government finance isn't like a household finance. It's going to be this weird thing that came out of this because people repeat that. And I get oh, that it's different. Michael, to your point, what, what they, right? These, these, these elitesters say now, the banksters, oh, government finance is not like household finance. I know. We, we don't need to balance our, our budget. You little plebs, you, you need to balance your budget. You need to pay your credit cards on time. You need to pay your home loan on time. You can't not pay your bills. Right. We cannot pay our bills. Right? We can just 
by fiat, by declaration, create more ones and zeros in a computer. Because it's not, it's not even like they have to buy the ink and the paper anymore and print the money, right? They just hit a computer button and, you know, it's, it's funny. You think about what does Jay Powell do? What does the uh. chairman of the Fed do? You know, was he literally put on the apron and, and dump the ink into the printing press and go out there and, and print the money? No. Does he literally like push a button on his computer and bang, make, make more money? No. What the Fed does, remember, not, not federal, not, not part of the government, no reserves, not a bank, no deposits. There's, there's nothing in the Eccles building. There's no money. There's no gold. There's no nothing. Hey. What, what, do they, what do they actually do? They make decisions, policy decisions, bureaucratic policy decisions on recommended rates of interest. But wait a minute, why, why, why does a policy group get to do that? Why doesn't the market do that? In what, give me an example, I'm not, I'll ask anybody, give me an example where fixed prices are a good idea. Uh, right? Versus market prices. You can't, you can't do it because markets, Markets work better than human beings. Human beings are corruptible. You know, I, I talk about this all the time with, you know, why does, why does Bitcoin even exist? Why does, why does blockchain technology exist? Because somebody came up with this idea to solve the biggest problem of the last 800 years. And that's a big statement, but, but I actually believe it is. The biggest problem of the last 800 years, which is in the old days, I, I lent you money. and I had the account. There was single entry accounting and I wrote down, Michael owes me a hundred dollars. And you right. come back a year later to pay me 110 for the interest. I'm like, oh, geez, Michael, you owe me 220. Like, no, I only borrowed a hundred. Like, says right here. And so the Medici's, well, actually it was this guy brother or something. They, they took the idea and said, no, 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 no. Okay, we had a better solution. Huh. Two ledgers. Michael keeps a book. Mark keeps a book, and we, the benevolent Manishis, will decide which number's right. Okay, but here's the problem. They can be corrupted. Okay. I can pay the Medicis or the J.P. Morgans or whoever, a little something-something. I can change my ledger to 200, and you come to pay back, and you're like, hey, my ledger says 100. And oh, Michael, I'm sorry. Mark's book is the right book. And that's the nonsense that we've been living with since, well, really, up to 1971, when there was a gold standard, there was some tether. Shouldn't use that word because now it's been correct. It's like, you're not allowed to use the word Trump. Like, you know, you used to be able to say something Trump's this or that, like playing cards. Can't say that anymore. Now I can't say tether because, but there was a linkage. Okay, linkage. There was a linkage to actual money. 171, now they can corrupt all the ledgers. Then blockchain comes along and says, no, 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 we're, we're going to have the right numbers. We're going to have truth instead of trust. And I got no trust. At the end of the day, this is the problem. I have no trust with these big banksters. None. I got none. Well, I'm with you. I, I also think the you know, the other thing that triple entry accounting saves really is the, instead of even just two parties behaving, it's really the third, which controls the ultimate money supply. But let, let's, uh, I, I want to get, I want to get your perspective on the FOMC specifically. Yeah. So we got our 25 basis point hike. We are getting a, the hawkish pause, I think is, is being called the hawkish pause because there was Jay Powell basically firmly opened the door that this might be the last rate hike, but he did. He he did say something to the effect of, I'm not concerned about the banking sector. And we see that actually firming yeah. up and getting stronger. And I mean, hours or days later, that's when that's when PacWest uh, basically started to go into free fall. So I think the, the perception there was that he's committed to staying 
keeping rates higher for longer, and that's bearish for some parts of the economy. But I'm curious what what your thought was, what your interpretation was. I, I mean, I think your analysis is is spot on. Look, what's come out of his mouth, that office, whatever, because he's a spokesman for the office, uh, over the last year, it's hard to do this job of analyzing it because sometimes it's like completely illogical, right? right? It's illogical to say, I'm not concerned about the banking industry. Yeah. Right? That's, that's illogical. I mean, that's literally that meme of the dog sitting at the table with the fires raging and saying, oh, this is fine. It's fine. It ain't fine. People's lives, like real people, not, not people that you hang out with, Jerome, but like real people and not like super wealthy, you know, people that are like, oh, they can handle it. No, like working class, no, not like industrial factory worker, but, but the, the cogs of the information age and the financial age, bank managers, branch managers, people, and, and all these guys were paid with stock-based compensation. Because, you know, you want to be like a tech fund, you know, want to be a tech bank. So there's like a lot of damage that's been caused right. by this laissez-faire. Oh, it is fine. It is fine. Ms. Lagarde, it is fine. No, it's not fine. It is not fine. And the hawkish pause? Are you joking? So you're trying to say the word pause. This is, this is media. You're trying to say the word pause so you can pump stocks. Right? We want stocks to go up because if rates stop going up, well, then we can, then we can have the discount rate. We, we can rationalize that the discount rate's lower because it's not going to rise. Y'all, the, the discount rate is now 5%. It was zero. And, and you know, the problem with zero, if you divide anything by zero, it's infinity, right? So stocks in theory were worth infinity which is kind of where we got to in valuation land. We got to, you know, Stupidville. Yeah. But at five, we're still in crazy land. Right? We were, all of the last four and a half months of, gain, four and, whatever, four months of gains has been multiple expansion. Yeah. Well, why would multiples expand if rates were rising? Unless, unless the rates rising were a sign of economic strength because economic activity was increasing. That ain't happening, right? Uh -uh. We had a crappy GDP print, okay? And it looks even worse for Q2. So that's not it. So if rates are rising because of this, I want to burst this, this, you know, financialization bubble, um, or this, you know, I'm, I'm fighting inflation. I need, I need price. Again, I don't know if you've been watching oil prices lately, but oil prices are down uh. and down a lot. So that kind of one-time blip to CPI, it's gone. It's gone. And by the end of the year, we might be sub to. Forget, forget even the two percent target. We might be back to sub two. I'm not saying it will happen, but it, it's certainly possible. And money supply growth has been negative now for the first time in hundred years, uh, coming up on nine months. That that's very deflationary, not inflationary. So I I struggle with the jawboning, and then the jawboning about the jawboning, like this hawkish pivot. He didn't say, I mean, he didn't say I'm done. He said I might be done, kind of. Now, he also never said I'm going to start cutting. Right? There's a whole bunch of people who came into this year saying, actually, because you can see it in the, in the futures curve, Fed's going to cut. Okay. But again, why would they cut? Let, let's, let's evaluate why. Well, if things get really bad, then they're going to have to cut. 
So again, now we're back to this, oh, bad news is good news. So we want the crappiest news. We want crappy economic growth. We want crappy jobs. We want people unemployed. Then stock prices can go up because we can cut interest rates. You know, it's been like that for me. I know the, for a long time. The majority of the time that I've been paying attention to markets. <laughs> no, that's, like, it's a good point. The majority of my life as, as a, you know, somewhat, you know, someone who pays attention to this stuff, that has been the dynamic and the case. No, no, no. It, it's a very important point because it, we really have been in, in the upside down, you know, to quote Stranger Things. We, we've been in the upside down since 2009. Yeah. And, and again, if you want to get sinister and suspect about it, what if that's been a plan or the plan? If you look at that period of time, uh -huh. we don't know what caused the problem, which was that financialization and CDO squared and, and, the, and the movement of risk and the CDS and, and all this, you know, alphabet soup. Well, then we had a crash, like, like a serious crash. And it was, it was a scary time. I mean, super scary time. I, for me personally, that was because that was, I, I had a billion four loan that I owed to um, the French bank. Not, not Paribas, but anyway, Sorry, I don't even remember the name. I put it out of my head because it was... Well. It was uh, such a, it was a scary time. And, mm -hmm. you know, they called a loan and it was a loan on, on a uh, fund of hedge funds. And I'm like, well, why did I have to pay you back? I, my, my term's not up. I'm, I'm current. I'm, everything's fine. We don't like your collateral. What? That's not your call. Um, and I'm like, well, it says right here that we can disqualify your collateral. So you can change the rules in the middle of the process. Like, who does that benefit? Why, 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 why can you do that? So anyway, it, it happened and, and you know, we paid it back and it hurt a bunch of people, average investors. And uh, that was a scary time. Now, yeah. then here's the interesting part. Then they bailed out the banks with government money and they all did fine, and investors lost money. Like, huh, that's interesting. Okay, why didn't we share? But okay. Um, well, then we go back to this whole period of, of emergency stimulus, right? Zero interest rates. Again, I, we've talked about this. I don't think you borrowed at Fed funds. I never borrowed at Fed funds. We always pay a, a much higher premium um, for loans if you could even get a loan. But the banks kind of got reliquified. You know, the balance sheets got built back up. Well, the current period, it just feels like, and I, I didn't, <laughs> despite the fact that what people think, I didn't live through the 1907 Knickerbocker panic. All right, not that old. But I did write a very long letter about the Knickerbocker panic. Um, I mean, like 60 page letter about the Knickerbocker panic. And this feels like that, where JP Morgan famously quipped, I like a little competition. Uh, and he basically wiped out an entire industry for his benefit. This feels oh, just like that. Just like you, that. You might be right. And there, there usually are shenanigans that are being played by some of the largest, largest players, but. I have a, I have a slightly different sort of worldview and my, my worldview on why this is all happening is there's a certain amount of growth expectations that's just baked into society. And we yeah. as a people, when the economy doesn't give us the growth expectation that our whole society is based around, we look for workarounds before we finally take our medicine. So the most obvious expectation of that is in the, the expected return for pensions what we promised yeah. everyone yeah. in these entitlements a long time ago. That's why pensions have this, you know, this so much better than me, this 7% target. Yeah. Well, what happens when, assumed rate of return. Right. What happens when you can't hit that 7% target? You gotta, you gotta fudge the number somehow. That's, I really think that's what's well, going on here. You actually, you know, actually, you know what you really do? This is this crazy part. 
you you cut the benefits yeah. to the people that need the money, yeah. and you tax the citizens of the local. Uh, if it's a municipal fund or, or or a public fund, you you tax the locals more to to fill up the coffers. Yeah. I mean, I, I I've sat in in board meetings of of these pensions, and and just watched the most unspeakable atrocities, where you're just yeah. like, no, you can't, you can't just take their benefits away. Well, we can't. It says right here that we can't. It's like it's like when when the bank, um, what the hell is the other big French bank? Um, Sockchat. Sockchat. Thank you. Uh, yeah. When yeah. yeah, I put it literally out of my mind. Yeah. So when Sockchat called up and said, "Pay us the money," like, why? Like, because we said. I'm like, but but that's not what my contract says. So the same thing here. It's like my benefit statement says I get this. I'm sorry, we didn't make the return that the actuaries told us we needed to make. And I remember having this debate, and I'm, I won't name names, but um, I should name names because this is just crazy. So there's this consultant. And, and again, here's part of the problem. You got these consultants who are not stakeholders, right? They're paid a flat fee. There's no upside, no down. The only downside is getting fired. So you're incented to never do anything that would get you fired, which means you're not going to really push too far out on the risk spectrum because in the short run, that could not work. In the long run, it might work. But it, it, anyway, so we're looking at the 10-year numbers. And the actuary assumed rate, seven and a half. And they had done three and a half for 10 years. And this is not that long. I mean, this is, this is like a recent period. Ten years, right. three and a half percent. And the actuary says, "I've got a, I've got a solution." And I'm like, okay. He says, "Let's lower the actuary assumed rate from seven and a half to seven. Like, so take benefits away. Like, but three and a half is still less than seven, so I, that isn't going to fix it. And I." suggested i said well if you look at the list of assets you know over that period stocks i think had done 6.8 and bonds had done four and a half and hedge funds had done five or something and and there's this one thing private equity and that is all private is venture and buyouts and uh, private equity done 11. and i raised my hand i said you know maybe we should do more of that they said, well, what are you talking about? You're just talking your book. You're a private equity. I said, no, 11 is better than seven. He says, that, oh, that is so insulting. This, this board, they're very professionals, and that is so insulting. I'm like, no, that's just math. Uh -huh. 11 is better than seven. And so there's this weird, this weird dynamic, and, and it's, an, it's an agency problem. It's a so it's, it, it, it's big. It's a big issue. Yeah, I, I, I agree with I agree with all that. And I, to to just like fully round out this this little thesis of mine that maybe people could tell me I'm I'm right or wrong or if they agree or don't agree. But if you if you take that principle of there's a there's an expectation of growth that's baked into society. Well, when did we get the current expectation of growth? It actually came right around the time of you know post World War II when we had the one one of the greatest wealth transfers in the in the history of of the world up until that point, which was the GI Bill, right? And what that was was a transfer essentially from the old to the young, and the young being the guys who had just went over and fought in yep. Europe. Yep. And there were three avenues that they did that, right? They invested in, they gave people access to cheap mortgage uh, credit yep. for mortgages, credit for businesses, and education. Boom! What a wonderful way to invest in the next generation. That coupled with just a new, new vigor for life, right? Having I mean, fought this crazy war led to this huge population boom, a lot of growth. That's when they locked in these growth expectations. Now, you know, some uh, 60, 70 years later, we're rolling off the back of that. And suddenly we're not growing as fast anymore because the conditions that led to that growth don't exist. So what do you do, right? Do you just let your pension system become insolvent or 
Do you try to do things in the interim? And I think, I think part of the reason the Fed has been at the center of this is because our Congress hasn't been able to act in a coherent way. We haven't been able to get the fiscal complement to our monetary policy that we've been right. doing. So everything is going to monetary. I think another part of why we're seeing such persistently low rates is there's this hope that with lower rates, more people are going to invest more and then we're going to hit some new technology. And that's going to help us grow our way out of this little situation that we've put ourselves in. But so far, nothing has happened. And they just keep lowering rates and lowering rates. And I just, that's that's my genuine assessment of what I think is going on right no, now. No, no, it, it, it's, it's such a great analysis. And, and, and just the extension of that analysis is that boom, of which I am one, I'm the second to last year. My wife is the last year of that, that baby boom. So 63, 64. So from 46 to 64, massive, 84 million births, okay? Well, actually more than that, but, but 84 million of us. Uh, but 84 million, that's a lot. So in that period that you described, homeownership, furniture, technology, travel, cars, computers, awesome. Maximum consumption, age 46 and a half. That's your maximum consumption in your life. Kids are in school, get the big house, big travel. And, and then it starts to roll over. Now, today, right, every single day, 10,000 people in this country turn 65. Every single day for the next 17 years. And 65 to 85-year-old people have a different spending habit. They're not productive in the sense of, you know, they, they leave the workforce, they, they become savers, they spend less, they downsize, they're not buying the big houses, they're not buying, what happens? Simple supply and demand. You know, wow. it's, it's like, I, I, this great, it's kind of interesting. There's this guy, it's kind of controversial, but this guy, Grant Cardone, I don't know if you know that name, but he's a- I do, why do I know that name? He's a yeah. Twitter guy, he's a real estate, he's like, he's the 10X, that's his thing. And he and his wife, they're, they're speakers, and okay. some people think it's a little shady, but he's, he's got millions of followers, and he's written some books, and he does these seminars. and So he's got a twin brother, Gary Cardone, and, and the Cardone brothers are pretty famous. and um, Gary's done well in, in life doing some interesting stuff, and he literally calls out of the blue, calls my assistant, says, hey, I want to come up and have lunch with Mark. I heard about him from a friend so he actually came up this day and he was you know telling me this bunch of stories and we're, we're talking about a bunch of stuff and um oh shoot now getting old uh, i totally forgot my my train of thought um where was i going with that that's it's all right i'll tell i'll tell you what i want to segue into the last thing that i wanted to get your get your thoughts on if you remember we can circle back but yeah, i wanted to get here your... i had a, i had a really good point we were talking about demographics and um and how the world changes um but now i lost my trade of thought I and before before i i want to just one thing that i'll say as well by the way a huge difference from the mid to end of 1940s whenever we did the gi bill and today that the largest now wealth transfer is actually in covid and back then it was a transfer from the old to the young and during during covid it was a transfer from the old to the old. There was some transfer from the old to the old. And I don't, you know, I don't, it's a little bit of an exaggeration to see this is, but it's, I think it's a lens that you could start to look at if you, if you happen through the world. Cause when, when, when the feds buying mortgage backed securities, what are they doing? They're subsidizing the housing market. That's what they're doing. They're stepping in and they're buying up mortgages at a rate that makes zero sense. It is a direct subsidy. I heard it quantified. There was a guy, uh, my colleague, Jack Farley did a great interview with an ex central banker, Sir Paul Tucker, he estimated it was a $400 billion subsidy to homeowners in the U.S. Why? Why do you, why do you need that subsidy? That's, that's a crazy no, subsidy. Because, because, because the same people that made the promises now run the government. It might just be that simple. I, no, it is I that simple. I kind of agree with that. Yeah, yeah. It is that simple. Yeah. 
it's the same people. And we yeah, talked about right. this, right? What is an entitlement? An people. entitlement is a promise you make to yourself that you don't fund and you ask your kids to pay for. Yeah. Okay. We'd all vote for that. We, and we did. The boomers did. And that, look, we have a geriatric Congress, geriatric president. I mean, it's all geriatric. That's just a technical term. That's not a criticism. That is, that is a technical term, right? When you reach a certain age, you are in, in the geriatric set. That is fact. And those people are funded by other geriatric people, heads of corporations, right? It ain't a bunch of 20-year-olds who are the head of Raytheon and you know, all the defense companies that make money when we you know, send a bunch of weapons over to Ukraine, right? Yeah. That is not young people benefit. That is old people. That's why I say old to old. And during the lockdown, what happened in the lockdown? This is a crazy stat. Three and a half trillion, with a T, three and a half trillion, went from the average person to the fangs. Yeah, they ate. They did pretty well. Mark, I want to I get your opinion on Coinbase because Coinbase dropped their earnings yesterday. We're recording this on the Friday the 5th. And the results were good. And I thought it was, I thought it was interesting on a number of different fronts here. So I can walk you through kind of the, the high level metrics here, but it, it was a beat on, on revenue. So they did 736 million in, in Q1 revenue, but their financials looked quite a bit better as well. So they had a yep. net loss of 79 million, which, you know, isn't great, but compared to previous net losses, which if you're following along on, on video here, you can see. Yeah, Q3 and Q4 of last year, there was a net loss of $545 million and $557 million, respectively. That's changed quite a bit. Their adjusted EBITDA number is now positive in the realm of uh, $284 million, as opposed to a hundred-some million dollar loss that they've been having for the last couple of quarters. That's quite good. And yep. Mark and uh, Brian signaled during his last their Q4 earnings release that they were shifting in philosophy. So... Initially, Coinbase had this philosophy of we're going to break even during these bear periods and we're going to make all of our money during these bull periods. They've changed that philosophy. They now like to generate positive adjusted EBITDA across all quarters, right? no matter what the market yep. condition. In terms of their actual, you know, when you start to break out revenue, really, they've got their subscription and services component highlighted because the thinking for Coinbase goes, they make the vast majority of their business right now is on transaction fees. Eventually, those fees are going to go to zero, just like they have in traditional markets. And that's why there's so much emphasis on the services and subscription part of their, part of their revenue. The expectation there was 300 to 325 billion. They had a big beat on that. That was 362 million. They've also got some of these other uh, kind of call out statistics here. But what I want to draw your attention to is in their revenue, they break it out between transaction revenue, which is yep. sort of the legacy business that everything that you and I were just talking about. So you can see they break out basically retail versus institutional numbers here. You can see there was a jump in institutional activity in Q1, which foots with a little thesis of mine. Crypto's done very well so far this year. Retail is nowhere to be found. Retail is not in this market. None. So Nowhere. There's none. So that to me... The only logical party there left is institutions. And I think you sort of see that in, in Coinbase's numbers here. The other thing, just looking at their services and subscription parts of their revenue, they break it out into four buckets. There's blockchain rewards, which is basically staking. There is custodial fee revenue, interest income, which comes from their center consortium, their partner with Circle, partnership with Circle and USDC, and then other, which is, I guess, just sort of this catch-all bucket for things like Coinbase One. And their blockchain rewards, the staking part of their revenue did well. I'm sure that just tracks the price of ETH because staking rewards are denominated in ETH. Uh, and then look at that interest income. I mean, that is just continuing to explode. Yep. You, might, you might see some, some headwinds to that in the next earnings release because Circle or US Circle lost about eight or nine billion dollars in market cap to Tether when the, the peg broke in March. That was probably too late for it to show up in these numbers, but it might impact next quarter's numbers but yep. overall what a good it's a good result for for coinbase there were plenty of questions about regulation but as of today I, as of right now i think the stock is trading up something like eight percent uh pre-market awesome so. and and i think you know your the analysis is is great as always but i think the the important point here 
is your your perspective on they're they're operating on on kind of all cylinders, right? They they're, are. They're really operating this business very well. Now there's a whole bunch of people, right? There's all the short sellers are, are jumping on this, and you know, it, and now Mark Cajones hasn't come out, but all the people that that are right under him, it's like the you know the shark and the remora. All the remora that that hang on to Mark are are all over this saying, oh, the, uh, the SEC is going to shut them down. No, no, they, they can't shut them down because they haven't done anything that is worthy of, of being shut down. And yes, there is this, um, how did you call it? <laughs> Healthy uh, contentionism between the, the, the two leaders. And and I admire Brian as as a CEO and as a leader here. I mean, not kowtowing and and just giving in and saying, "Yep, yep, I'll we'll just give in to to the demands at the at the threat of of suit, right, by a government agency that that has you know pretty pretty serious authority these days." So yeah, I I think that's great. And 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 look, he's done smart things by looking at the new laws that are being passed in in Europe and the UK and said, well, maybe we should, you know, think about what would happen if we're forced into a different jurisdiction because of of regulatory changes here. And so good CEOs do, right? You can't predict, you can't prepare. Yeah. So Hello, hello, everyone. Thank you all for listening to On The Margin. Just wanted to give you guys a heads up about a conference that we have coming up in the new year called Permissionless. I'm sure most of you all have been there last year. Uh, it is the cultural event of the year. We had over 5,500 people down in Palm Beach. This year, we are moving to Austin, Texas. You know what they say about Texas? Everything's bigger in Texas. <laughs> Uh, so last year, we had a really great lineup of speakers. We had the two co-founders of Robinhood, Vlad Tenev and Baiju Bot. We had Chris Dixon. We had some of the folks that have been on the show a whole bunch of times, Jim Bianco, Dan Tapiero, just a phenomenal lineup of speakers, and you can expect the same this year. If you use Margin 10, you will get 10% off on a ticket. Again, that's Margin 10, because I love you guys so much. Click the link at the bottom of the show notes. Hope to see you there in person. Yeah, they're. I mean, they've launched their their offshore exchange, so... We'll see. I think they still want to stay in the U.S. I, my hope, I know I, I just remain optimistic and hopeful about this. I think the U.S. is still a huge market. I still love living in the U.S. I work in crypto. I'm with you. I want to continue I'm, to live I'm, in I'm the United States. Chapel Hill. I, I do not want, look, I'm, I'm not going to El Salvador. You know, Max and Stacey say it's great. You know, Bukele's doing interesting stuff. Fine. Ta new tax bills is interesting. I'm just, I'm just not quite there. I'm, you know, Peter Zihan, this guy's Looney Tunes on the, oh, they created this maximum security prison. They're all going to break out. It's going to be horrible. I'm like, what? So anyway, it, and it's a, you know, it's amazing. It is, what, one of the things that's amazing to me is once you become, I don't know, an influencer, it's amazing how, you have to stay an influencer, even if it means chasing the most strict, like Elon, it's like Elon, when he, he jumps on every little thing and, and now there's other people that are doing the same things. Like whatever the hot story is, like today with Coinbase, there'll be a whole bunch of people that jump in and say, oh yeah, I, I, I've, I've loved Coinbase. I didn't look at it. So it, this influencer game is, is just bizarre. So anyway, I'm not going to El Salvador, but and I don't want to go anywhere, really. But boy, if if the Restrict it, Act passes, that's ugly. I so don't that, think that's getting passed, though. Do I, you? Look, I I hope not. I mean, it's it's crazy. I mean, to think that that you could have an app on your phone, and you could be arrested for just the ownership of the app. You didn't actually have to do anything; just the presence of that app. Now, I guess technically. In 1933, um, if you owned gold, that was the same thing. Now, there were no apps back then. There were no computers. But, but Executive Order 6102 basically said, 
you're a criminal if you own gold and you don't turn it in. Not everybody turned it in, so there were a whole bunch of criminals. Now, you had to get caught, and there was really no enforcement, as far as I know. They didn't go house to house searching for gold bars. But your phone is, is tougher because you go through security, and if they want to do a check... Now, someone will come up with software to hide your apps, I guess, but anyway. So the, the one last little, little piece that I want to leave everyone with is... They also, Coinbase tracks their, the volume, the trading volume that they did. And if you look, right, starting in Q1 of 22, it's basically been a one-way street down until this quarter. Yep. Where we have, it didn't, it didn't increase from last quarter, but it didn't fall. It's actually the exact same. And that is called the bottoming in volume. That's. That's a little bit alpha for the listeners out there. That is a pretty good indicator that markets have bottomed, at least in terms of crypto. Doesn't mean they're going to go up permanent. Doesn't mean they're going to go up immediately. But it's a it's is one of several indicators that my feeling my feeling my feeling since December has been that we've we've bottomed, and I think we're I think we're we're through the we're through the worst of it from a price action standpoint. There's still a lag in terms of overall activity and sentiment, business activity and sentiment if you work in crypto. So people still don't, the vast, the consensus opinion isn't that things are all great because they've just been through, everyone's been through 18 months or whatever it is of, of a massacre, you know? Uh, so there still needs to be a sentiment recovery, but I, I think there are signs out there if you look. We called it on this show, Crypto Spring started June 15th last uh, year, uh, and we'll call it again. Crypto summer starts next Tuesday on right. my birthday. It's my, my, my 60th birthday present. Crypto summer starts May 9th. You heard it here first. And, uh, and remember, the first part of summer isn't the warmest, right? right. But, but it's still summer. Yeah. And summer's, summer's starting. And coming up into the having, you know, by the time we get to the August, quote unquote, part of summer, uh, which is the having? It's going to be a very you and I are talking about very different things, and and that's good because yeah. at the end of the day, this is technological innovation. Okay, that's all it is. It's technological innovation. It's an enhancement of computing power, and uh, oh, I want to make one one comment on that. Um, it's an enhancement of computing power, and and it's it's as inevitable as every other enhancement in computing power. But, you know, everybody's like, oh, this AI thing, and AI is awesome. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'll check it out. So I, you know, did a little chat GPT like everything else. And, and uh, here's the thing. Next time you do a chat GPT, just remember that if you do, if you ask it about something that you know something, maybe you'll, Find out that's not exactly right. So I, I said, write a short summary of the Hesper Youth Growth Scholars Program, right? And, and the reason is that I was talking with the scholars because getting towards graduation. And uh, it says the Hesper Youth Growth Scholars Program was a highly competitive undergraduate scholarship program at the University of Notre Dame. It was established in 2009 uh, by generous donation from Frank H. and Joan K. Yusko. Like, I didn't know my name was Frank. And here's what's crazy. Frank is referring to Frank Eck, who built the baseball stadium and a whole bunch of other buildings. Joan Kay, my wife's name is Stacy, is Joan Croc, who built the you know, Peace Act. So they, it conflated a whole bunch of stuff. And then it goes on with a bunch of other errors about, you know, full scholarship. No, it's a half scholarship because we want the students to invest, co-invest with us. But that was just interesting, right? They couldn't yeah. even just read the press release and get it right. So AI is not going to replace us all. That that was my conclusion from that. That it isn't. We can't even get it. facts right. We're 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 a long way from being being replaced. So blockchain, on the other hand, triple entry accounting is going to replace everything, and we're going to have tokenization of everything. I'm, I met with a cool guy. This cool guy I was talking about yesterday. He is tokenizing land. This is an amazing thing. He bought a piece of land, 
he's tokenizing it. And then he's saying that by owning this land, we won't mine the, you know, 200 tons of coal, which is worth X carbon credits. So then he can tokenize the carbon credits by committing to not uh, mining the coal. I'm like, this is, this is real. This is interesting. And he's had increase, he's had a bunch of demand. And that's where we start to get the intersection of real life and this new technology. It's called get outside and uh, with a Y, but, but I think it's very cool. Nice. That's a good, good positive note to end it on Mark. And uh, as always, favorite hour of my week. I will see you back here. Same time next Absolutely. week. Absolutely. See you next Cheers, week. Cheers, sir. Thanks, man.